used to be a mutuality of understanding, admiration between us, Henry. Why is it, my old friend, that you've you've moved so far away from me? Oh, all motion is relative, Matt. Maybe it's you who have moved away by standing still. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 23, which is Cole's selection. So, my old friend, what do you have for us? For this episode, I have chosen Inherit the Wind from 1960, directed by Stanley Kramer, starring Spencer Tracy, Frederick March, Gene Kelly, Dick York, Claude Aikens, and Harry Morgan, and written by Nedrick Young and Harold Jacob Smith, based on the play by Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee. The film and the play are a loose fictionalization of the events surrounding the Scopes Monkey Trial in 1925, in which a high school teacher in Tennessee was put on trial for violating the Butler Law, which outlawed the teaching of evolution in Tennessee schools. Now this was produced and directed by Stanley Kramer, who is notoriously liberal and very much a maker of message pictures, capitalized message pictures. Films like The Defiant Ones, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It's a mad, 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 mad world. (laughs) Though there is a message in that. There is a message about greed, and it is definitely not a subtle film. If you've seen it, 105 speaking parts in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. I love that movie. I know you do. Also, Judgment at Nuremberg. Right, so some... Among many other glorious films. This is very definitely in that mold. Of message picture in this case an indictment of that current of anti-intellectual thought that has run and is still currently running through American public discourse in particular this was not only dealing with the scopes trial but this was also analogous to what people were going through with McCarthyism at the time the play was written as a very definite rebuke of McCarthyism and the heinous actions of the House Un-American Activities Committee. And one of the playwrights, Jerome Lawrence, said specifically that the play is about the right to think. And interestingly, mentioning McCarthyism, Nedrick Young, one of the screenwriters, was specifically brought in by Stanley Kramer, and he had been subject to the blacklist. So it's a battleground picture. It is about the fight for the human intellect. A man's right to think, a man's right to teach. Kramer sets the tone and demonstrates to you immediately how high he considers these stakes to be, I think, by this opening sequence. I thought this opening sequence in the film is a really great example of using established cinematic language and convention from another genre to communicate an idea in a picture that does not belong to that genre. The opening shot of the film begins with the town square, clock chiming, empty streets, and you have men gathering who are on a mission. Where have you seen this before in film? Typically, the streets will have tumbleweeds blowing through them. 
That is true. When when I think about looking at your pocket watch and looking at the time, I think, ooh, a train's coming in or bad guys are about to arrive or something like that. Exactly. And anytime you have two or three men silently gathering in a town square that is deserted by the rest of the populace, what's coming? A showdown. Mm. And in those films, when we have a showdown like this, what is the eventual outcome? Somebody's going to die. That's exactly right. So subconsciously, by using this convention in the very opening 45 seconds, coming into a film that as a filmgoer in 1960, you thought was about science versus religion or was going to be a tense courtroom drama, you now have this seed planted that the stakes are life and death. By using these tropes that you've seen in every other film you've seen them employed in, in which someone is on the wrong end of a gun, you understand that at least Stanley Kramer thinks the stakes for this fight are no less than life and death. Well, I think about the use of the opening song as well, Give Me That Old Time Religion, and it's sung to me very much like a dirge Mm -hmm. by Leslie Uggams, who I forget every time until I watch it, oh, that's Leslie Uggams singing it, which is a really fascinating choice as well. Mm -hmm. African-American singer, dancer, actress great use of that song and what I kept thinking about was that very specific line and it's good enough for me and how many things does that sentiment apply to it was good enough for my father it's good enough for me you don't have to think anymore be challenged anymore so the action proper hasn't even really begun and Kramer has established this sort of grim tone and a very high stakes battle is about to begin. And specifically, one of the three men shown is Claude Aikens, who is the town preacher, the voice of God for the town. The spiritual leader of the town. Yes. And when you see that, I think you know right away as well, something is brewing and it's everyone looks quite grim and determined. So we see that he has this place along these two other men, whom we don't know who they are at this point. But Whoever these town leaders are, they're preparing for something. What they are preparing for is to visit Bertram Cates in his classroom, which is what they're on their way to do. This is the showdown. The first of a few. Oh, the first of many. But the central battle for the soul of Hillsborough begins right there. That's ground zero. As he is continuing the classroom discussion of Darwin's theory of the descent of man, which they then dramatically interrupt and arrest him for teaching something that's contrary to the Bible in the classroom. And it's this arrest that generates national headlines. And we come to a really fascinating, to me, scene, which is the other town leaders and prominent business people and politicians talking about what a terrible idea this whole thing was. Are they all convinced that it's a terrible idea, or are some of... To me, they seem to be debating the merits of going through with this. Great point, because I was about to say, however, they are all opportunists Mm -hmm. of some level or another. It's the opportunity to show that we can get more tourists to come if this happens, while other people are saying we're going to look like idiots and hillbillies, really. And then other people who say, I won't put money into this because, as the banker mentions, I won't invest in antiquity. Mm -hmm. So it's really fascinating that everyone's offering this different viewpoint. 
So I possibly misspoke when I said terrible idea, but there are people who are saying this is not going to end well for us as a city. Well, the people who are mightily in favor of it are the fundamentalists because they feel heaven has chosen us to light the way. Definitely. And when we talk about this film being a loosely fictionalized account of the Scopes monkey trial, it's really also interesting to me to look at the actual historical event, which was devised as a publicity stunt. True. Scopes himself agreed to be the defendant. He did. He wasn't even sure that he had actually taught evolution in class, but he said, if I have, I will go ahead and stand up to be the person to represent this issue. So it could be sort of a friendly test case for the ACLU in actuality. Yes, and I also think about, I imagine there was probably a similar meeting in Dayton, Tennessee by other folks saying, yeah, let's get some tourists in here. This is going to pack them in to come see this, and we're going to definitely make headlines. Oh, they certainly did that. It was orchestrated from the very beginning. It was not the highly emotionally charged storm into the classroom throw him in irons event that you see in the film. Right. He was never arrested. Scopes was never arrested. It was devised by groups of attorneys and town leaders to capitalize on whatever publicity could be ginned up by having this trial. And it began with local attorneys being assigned to the case and it spiraled further and further and further out of control until you got William Jennings Bryant and Clarence Darrow finally involved for the prosecution and defense. It became a trial of the century. Around, though, a very real issue, even a publicity stunt grounded in a very real issue, mm -hmm. because the Butler Act was no joke, and the man who created it did feel that he was called by God to do this. But it was also put in play by lawmakers, at least a few who said they never thought it would be enforced. It, it was to appease constituents and win votes. Definitely, especially in rural areas. Mm -hmm. And I would like to add, the Butler Act wasn't even repealed until 1967, seven years after Inherit the Wind. So you've got the town leaders arguing about, is this the right thing to do, is it not? Like you mentioned, the banker who wants his son to go to an Ivy League school, which won't accept kids who don't know science, says he will not invest in antiquity. What happens is, a newspaper is delivered, as often is in films from this era, that informs them that Matthew Harrison Brady, the analog of William Jennings Bryan, has volunteered to work for the prosecution. He sees it as his opportunity for essentially a new Bible crusade. And from the moment that happens, from the moment that bit of news is delivered, it's on. And it's a constant 24-hour carnival atmosphere from that point on, except for the times when there is a revival meeting going on. In the meantime, Bert's in jail, and his fiancée, Rachel who is also the daughter of the Reverend, comes to visit him to plead for him to back down. And this is when our H.L. Mencken analog, the Sage of Baltimore, one of my absolute favorite journalistic iconoclasts from the last century plus, shows up in the form of Gene Kelly to offer to help finance Bert's defense. To step back for a second, we first see... Bert and his jailer playing a friendly game of cards and they're on a first name basis and I think it's really interesting again to see how people in a small town you all know each other 
but yet you can find yourself on these opposite sides or being used as a pawn, even if you're on the same side. And that will, I think, come into play a little bit later. It has a very Mayberry feeling to it. In addition to that, I spotted at least five regular Mayberry Andy Griffith Show cast members in this film as well. So this is where Gene Kelly is introduced as E.K. Hornbeck, the Minkin character, from the Baltimore Herald, the newspaper that are putting their full journalistic weight behind Bertram Cates and his case to be a free thinker. And you mentioned that he interrupts Rachel, the preacher's daughter, and Bert, and they're having a very intense discussion. She wants him to give up this trial and give up his principles, give up possibly the essence of who he is in order not to make trouble because clearly it's already made this blow to the town. It's fun to see Gene Kelly operating in this role as the serpent. With a literal apple, yes. A literal apple between characters that he actually refers to as Adam and Eve. He has this darkness that you don't usually get to see Gene Kelly employ, this cynical edge that he does a great job with, I think. Agreed. More than just a song and dance band. Yeah. As opposed to Dick Powell. <laughs> God. I'm not so gonna... is, this, is this now is this now the anti Dick Powell Brigade this podcast? Where, this was my I'm doing... Okay, Dick Powell supporters. Yes, I chose this title specifically as a Trojan horse so I could go on a forty minute rant about Dick Powell and how much I hate him and how he should never ever get to come near a Raymond Chandler property ever, ever, ever. What's the problem? A lot, a lot of people like Dick Powell. He's a, he was America's uh, sweetheart song and dance man, and he had a, a, a dark edge that he ably employed. A in. dark edge. Sure. You get some sort of an argument against it? Megaphone crooners don't have a dark edge. Period. Rudy Valley is. <laughs> I'm trying to think Marlowe. of I don't know. Rudy Valley is Charles Manson in. <laughs> The musical. Two exclamation points. Yes. Okay. So thankfully, Gene Kelly has got a wonderful dark side. This is where in my notes, after watching them have this conversation with Gene Kelly and the apple and the biblical metaphor that's going on there... I'm wondering, how do current fundamentalists feel watching this film? Do you think a lot has changed? Because, full disclosure, clearly I am on the side of science and reason. It's a message picture, and it's one of my favorites because I agree with the message. If I was on the other side of this argument, how do I feel watching this movie? Because it's such a broad movie in a lot of ways like we said it doesn't actually reflect what really happened the townsfolk for instance were not a pitchfork and torch mob as they definitely are in this at least some of them Mm -hmm. so there are all these exaggerated characteristics buffoonish characteristics of the fundamentalist characters whereas all of the pro-science atheist agnostic characters are the noble heroes This can only be conjecture on our part as to how someone on the other side of the argument would feel, because I think you are on the same side of this argument that I am. But I just wonder how 
that portion of the audience, looking back now, some 50 plus years at this, still feels about this fight? Well, I can speak to that on a couple of different levels and give a couple of different examples. One being, I didn't grow up as an atheist nor an agnostic. I grew up going to church up to a certain age, Mm -hmm. which was in my uh, very, very early teens. So I stopped at that point. But I had a number of years going to different churches with different family members. And I also grew up in smaller town, Southern America. I think our experience is actually really close up to that point. When I was a young person, up until my mid to late teens, I had not family, but a lot of friends that were active in a variety of different denominations. So I had the benefit of seeing Catholic services, Pentecostal service, Baptist services, but it was at least interesting to see the difference between all of those things. And soon after that, moving away to go to college, I pretty much left all of that behind with the exception of a few religious-based assignments in a sociology class. It almost coincides with when I discovered this, which we'll get into more later when we talk about the reasons why I chose this for the show. But I had a similar, I think, experience, at least having close communication with people, some of whom were very devout fundamentalists, that I'm still really good friends with, but I don't think I had it as close to me as you did with family. I think I was much more immersed in it. I know I was much more immersed in it. I think that my family members specifically took me to church in order to save my soul. Mm -hmm. That was an expressed concern. So I was surrounded by religion, and especially where I'm from, it's Baptist and Methodist, and then anything else might as well be communism, essentially. (laughs) It's, It's very much fundamentalist. However, A large portion of one side of my family is Seventh-day Adventist, which is practically heretical (laughs) to a lot of other folks, but it's all still the same thing. But if it gives you any sort of a sense of how narrow that margin is in that specific area of the South. But to go back for a second, I was very much immersed in it. And I played Bible games and went to vacation Bible school and was at town hall meetings and prayer meetings and revivals and things like that. And I didn't really have a problem specifically with the Bible. And as I became older, I was one of those people who I think you see reflected in the film that don't necessarily have a problem with science and the Bible together, don't see them as having to be mutually exclusive. And then transitioning away, and I didn't actually realize at the time that I could make the decision to to not believe the Bible, Mm. to look for something else. I didn't really know that that was... It didn't occur as an option? It didn't. There were just people who didn't go to church or who went to church. But I didn't know that atheism or agnosticism was even a thing then. So your assumption as a young person, as a child, into your adolescence was... Both of those groups, whether they went to church or didn't, were still Christian. Yes, generally. And I think most people would have said that as well. So then I get older and I begin to discover other things and read other things and watch other things and listen to other things. And I realize, oh, there's a much, much larger world that I just started to see pieces of that 
and then begin to incorporate those questions into my own life. Those questions that Bertram Kate says that the questions that you ask your own heart. Mm -hmm. So I start to have those questions. And at that point, I'm in high school. And I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, where I went to high school was a predominantly, and by predominantly, I mean 95% uh, Mormon high school. So Mormonism, that's a very strict faith. And I had many friends in the Mormon faith, and they probably, like your friends and other denominations, very much wanted to talk about what they believed in and would invite me over and have discussions and share things with me because that's what they believe in. And then that's when I saw this film for the second time, actually. We watched it in school, oddly enough, which seems like it would be a very odd choice for a very religious area. We watched this in school, and the thing that resonated for my class members, we had endless discussions about this. I think about this now, and Mm -hmm. it would be kind of fun, I think, to go back to my high school friends and see if they remembered it the same way. But the predominant discussion was on cynicism. They really struggled with the concept of being cynical, that that was somehow the cardinal sin, actually. Not believing or disbelieving, but not following your own heart, wherever that might lead you. So they would not necessarily have a problem with Kate's and his decision or Drummond, the Clarence Darrow analog, and his decision if it were presented with utter sincerity and forthrightness, if there wasn't that undercurrent, like Gene Kelly's character has, of cynicism and bitterness. No, I think they would still be burned at the stake, but (laughs) they would at least be... There would at least be some merit in that because when I was in school, three teachers were put in front of the school board for bringing in a homosexual student to represent a discussion on homosexuality. And that had no place in the school system. That was a very, very big deal when I was in school. Prayer in school was still a very, very big deal. There were people being elected to the local school board and there were massive discussions about what should be allowed and banning some textbooks and those things are still happening so i'm going to go way back to your original question of how prevalent is this still i think this happens every single day somewhere i will also reflect back to something i read a few months ago whenever i'm make the terrible decision to read comment threads on anything (laughs) it seems like I was reading a post from the PBS site on the Australia documentary series that they had shown, Australia being the oldest continent. Someone in the comment thread said, we will not be watching this. The world is uh, no older than, what is it, Mm 6,000 years, something like that. Uh, We will not be watching this. Well, my original question was not whether or not this still happens. Ah, My original question was, What do you think fundamentalists think when they watch this now? I guess you sort of answered the question in that the fight still goes on. The fight still goes on. And I think maybe they still see souls that need to be saved. That's what I think. My question actually is, what do non-Americans think when they watch this? I'd love to hear from people around the world who listen to the show to see if they have an opinion or an, an insight into that question. Otherwise, okay. it'll just be a question that I have. Strictly to do with 
the religion versus science battle or more to do with the jurisprudence angle or anything, any of that? Any of those questions, the right to think, the clash of cultures. In, in this film, it's very much represented, as you had mentioned, anti-intellectualism versus intellectualism as represented by sort of North versus South. And do other countries have those same sort of factions? They must, but I wonder how it's played out. Anyway, if anybody wants to respond back, I'd love to hear about it. So to you, this feels like a very American movie. It does. It very much does. Well, the next scene certainly reinforces that because this is when Brady arrives in town. Frederick March comes into town with a huge fanfare, a parade, brass band, in the open car to deliver a speech, which is what he's best at, in the town square to introduce himself to the townsfolk. He's given the title of Honorary Colonel. In the state militia. Again, very American. (laughs) And something that I thought was very telling, and I think it's something, again, like I mentioned before, in the discourse that goes on even today, the thing that motivates the conservatives' fear in this, he mentions very specifically in his speech, or at least it's implied in what he's saying, they view themselves as the victims, according to what he says. They're being encroached upon. To them, it has nothing to do with the freedom to think. To them, their civil rights are being violated by the very existence of this idea. They definitely view themselves as the victims in this case, and he puts this idea across more than once. Later in the scene that we reenacted a little bit of at the beginning, when they're sitting in the rocking chairs together talking, that idea comes up again that they're just reflecting the bitterness and rancor that's being directed at them. To that faction, they feel like they are reacting, not acting. They are being put upon in some way. They are being attacked. And this vitriolic response that you see in the film, they feel is justified because they are just defending themselves. They are not on the offense. They are playing defense. Because this idea, whether it be the theory of evolution or a scientific explanation of the Bible or the fact that the Bible should not be interpreted literally can only bring about the moral destruction of humanity. That is where this idea will end. So Frederick March delivers this bombastic oration, which is the first of many speeches that he will deliver that way, to be interrupted by Hornbeck, who also makes the stunning announcement that the defense is going to bring in Satan himself in the guise of Spencer Tracy as Henry Drummond, the Clarence Darrow analog. And in this scenario, what do you think these people think is worse? Agnosticism as possibly represented by Bert or atheism as represented by Drummond? I think atheism very definitely because they respond to this announcement with threats. They respond to Bert that way too eventually, I guess, but that's only after he is connected to Drummond. When Bert's on his own, it's still, like you mentioned, small town, we know each other. It's not so full of hate. But once the public views them as a unit, him, Hornbeck, and Drummond, there's a burning in effigy. There's a threat of lynching, all because he is teaching evolution and wants to teach kids simply to ask why. Yes, not that one or the other is right or not, but 
simply to think, to question. I think your question is also answered in the very next scene, which is the scene with Claude Akins and his daughter, the preacher and his daughter, where she is trying to simply reason with him. And in his zeal, he equates agnosticism with poison, but specifically says atheism equals filth. I don't know which one of those you might think would be the worst of the two. Would you rather be poison or just filthy? I guess a poison you can possibly have an antidote for. Uh, well, but filth, filth you you're, you're, you're forever unclean. You think? Yes. In that context, probably so. I think possibly. I'm trying to interpret this. I could sure. be wrong. No, I think you're right. It's very interesting to watch that. And he is simply at a certain point completely unable to even speak to her. He seeks this guidance from God. He drops to his knees. What to do? He's speaking to God. He cannot speak to her. She's trying to speak to him. He's not having any he part can't. of it. The conversation is not between father and daughter anymore. Why do people seek any sort of path to guidance? Do they not think that they have it in themselves to know that path? I'm responding very specifically to watching him do that, where mm -hmm. he just where he, cannot. He's overwhelmed. He cannot react as a human anymore. He has to speak to this other entity. He cannot act for himself. I think that mechanism shows up in a lot of different ways in people. One of my least favorite, for example, metaphors that people use for people who have addictions or people who are somehow otherwise troubled People who are even just cruel or generally jerks are occasionally referred to as that person has their demons. And I hate that idea because much like what you're talking about, that to me seems like a complete abdication of responsibility. It is no longer me saying, this is what I'm doing. I need to take responsibility for it. I am now putting it on some sort of metaphorical external force, something other than me and I no longer have to be fully responsible for my own actions. I think a ton of it comes out of that motivation, turning it over to something else and therefore not having to bear the entire burden of making a decision and performing an action. And the preacher specifically talks about, and then Brady even more specifically saying, God speaks to me. I am the instrument of God in these respects. And rather than I just firmly believe this I'm doing what I think is right rather they say instead I've been told to do this I must do this there are so many things that we are not going to have time to get into in this show we are not going to have time to get into the events surrounding the actual trial for instance we're not going to have time to adequately discuss William Jennings Bryan or Clarence Darrow both fascinating people with so much to research and look into and please go out and learn more about them. And much like the film is sort of broad and only touches on these topics in a, in a general beginning sort of way, it's the catalyst for conversation. We just are not going to be able to get into every idea that we want to or this show would be hours and hours long. Anyway, back to a couple of specific elements of the film. We're thinking about people looking to a higher power to determine what to do. And then I think about the scene a couple of moments later 
when Henry Drummond and Hornbeck are walking through the streets, Henry Drummond has just arrived. Right. Just prior to that, I think it's very interesting, the contrast in their arrival, how almost Puritan, (laughs) strangely enough, Drummond is. It is no frills. He shows up on the bus, carries his own baggage, no parade, no pomp, no band. He's there to do a job, and that's it. And they pass by this local farmer who says, we're just plain folk. We don't need anyone to tell us how to think. Uh... <laughs> so what's the preacher doing? What's, what are all these other folks doing? I, I don't know. Anyway. As an antidote to that, since you mentioned antidote, immediately after that, they run into a group of school-age kids, young men, who appear to possibly be menacing. They can't quite tell. No words are spoken when they come upon this group. And talking about film language, if I'm arriving someplace and I see eight high school boys standing of, there. A gang of young toughs. I, I assume something bad is going to happen. Delinquents. Yeah. So the switchblades coming out. Or, or not even delinquents, just the young hillbillies who are going to rough you up. Turns out they're students of Kate's who are ardent supporters of his. And they want to help however they can. And they're also on the fence. We'll learn about this a little bit more later, but they're not entirely sure what is the right answer, but also want to have the opportunity to think for themselves and be shown these questions. They're the future. They represent the future, which is hopeful in this case. So Brady meets Drummond for the first time in the film and intimates that at one point they sort of came from the same place. They were philosophically at least similar, if not identical. But their conversation seems to indicate, much like the film is talking about, that there has been an evolution. For both men, I think, each one further down the path that they have chosen for themselves, that is now irreconcilable, maybe, do you think? I have a big question about that, actually, and I want to reserve that for For a little bit later, if you don't mind. Sure. I think at this point in the film, it's not necessarily reconcilable. There's still uh, support and admiration, and I think those important battles that they fought together before were so huge that that carries at least some weight. Mm -hmm. So here is where we move into the meat of the film, which is the courtroom drama aspect of it. What we've been looking forward to, most probably, the battle between these two titans of oratory and statesmanship and as portrayed by two titans of early American film. They're fun to watch. They're so fun to watch them go at it hammer and tong in this courtroom. Two of my favorite actors. Hands down. Hands down. And Frederick March has got the gestures and the buffoonery, but also, to me, still doesn't take it to the point of caricature because he's always fighting. He's always thinking. He's always reacting. And then Spencer Tracy is so effortless with everything. They're both brilliant. I think I'm, if we had to choose, I'm a little bit more on the Spencer Tracy side in terms of favorite actors. I get it. And mm-hmm. you're a little more on the Frederick March I side? I do like Frederick March a whole heck of a lot and always have. It's so fun to watch him do this because, to me, this is unlike anything else he's done. Usually, when I think Frederick March, I'm thinking of lighter, more nimble performances. Everything from... Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to 
Nothing Sacred, which is a fantastic screwball comedy. He can do almost anything, it seems like. I think I first saw him possibly in this, but then also the best years of our lives. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I see that real heart of struggle and purpose and decency. I think it just comes down to who we personally relate to a little bit more. I have a more difficult time relating to Spencer Tracy as a person. He's a wonderful, amazing actor. And I was reading a little bit more about him and discovering all the debating that he did when he was in school and how he learned to speak so effortlessly and extemporaneously. And could also be a uh, gruff young guy and a gruff middle-aged guy and a gruff old guy. (laughs) And I think that's what you relate to. Probably. I think it has a lot to do with his innate feeling again i'm i'm projecting way out there here but based upon the things i've read about him he was very devout catholic maybe lapsed at some point but that whole notion of the emotional hair shirt he kept himself in that feeling that no one can punish me the way i will punish myself yeah and yes (laughs) okay so you see what i mean (laughs) so yeah So you take away all that, and I relate to Frederick March a little bit more. But not to say that I think one is better than the other. I think Frederick March is wonderful, and I don't want his performance to get lost under that makeup Mm. and the fat suit a little bit, because even just watching him in profile reacting, he's so good. So good. That lip licking is so gross. (laughs) But I think it was true to the character, Mm -hmm. for sure. He didn't just come up with this clown. So we move into the courtroom, and it's jury selection time, and we're introduced to another of my favorites, Harry Morgan, as the judge. And it's immediately established, it feels like, that agile wit is going to outflank bluster from the very beginning of the jury selection process all the way through the rest of the court proceedings. We see right away, it's Kramer. He sort of tips his hand, obviously. We know how this is going to end. But you make a great point about Frederick March and his performance not getting lost in this because Kramer being distinctly on Spencer Tracy's character's side, he's predisposed to give him the best lines. And put him up on the soapbox and make Frederick March's character play second fiddle and sort of the clown to, like I mentioned before, the noble agnostic hero. Let me say something though okay. before you go there. Okay. Brady is not stupid. No. And he he's is not, not uneducated. Not a cruel man necessarily. No. Again, he is doing what he believes to be the morally right thing and that there is an imperative behind it mm-hmm. that essentially the fate of the world is resting on what he is about to do. Yes, he does buffoonish things and has gigantic physical appetites, but the court is also on his side and his rhetoric does take the day often. Again, the court is prejudiced in his favor. Playing into, I feel like, Kramer's hands again in that everybody loves an underdog. But I see what you mean. One of my favorite devices that they use in this to separate these two characters as well, Frederick March is very much about performance. His character is always on stage. Yes. And that comes from a lifetime of having run for president three times and being a statesman and an orator. And at this point... His public persona 
doesn't really leave much time or room for the private man. Whereas when you watch Spencer Tracy as Henry Drummond interacting with characters, he's in so close. The shots when he is speaking to someone on the stand, for instance, he is insinuating himself into their space as if he's a confidant and a friend. And you see them framed as he's having these conversations with people in such a way that the closeness implies a bond that there's no way that you can feel with that Frederick March character. I think the only exception to that is with his wife, Sarah. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting, uh, Williams Jennings Bryan, his wife Mary also became a lawyer. And they were that close, and they worked very closely together, Mm -hmm. and she helped him develop speeches and all kinds of things. So I think that that is the relationship that means the absolute most to him. And that's where you see any elements of physical closeness. And then a bit later on, there's a scene with he and Sarah and Rachel, and that's when he gets the closest in. And that's followed quickly by the porch scene where he angles in towards Drummond. But yes, otherwise he's the more remote. Everything is happening in his head and as a projection out to the audience. You can imagine all of those pre-microphone speeches where you've got to sell it to the person in the back. And that's where he lives, always on. So we move into the trial phase. We've gone through jury selection. You've seen Drummond interact with some of the witnesses. You've seen more of Brady's bombast. You've seen Drummond petition the court to remove the sign that says, read your Bible over the entrance of the courtroom. You've seen him object to the announcement of a prayer meeting at the end of the day's proceedings in the courtroom. All of this stuff is just flabbergasting to me that these things went on. But that's true. These things did happen, maybe still happen. The notion that public officials entrusted to do these jobs quite clearly disregarded the notion of the separation of church and state so blatantly is just mind-blowing to me. Well, I just was in jury duty last week, and we all had to uh, state the Pledge of Allegiance, which includes under God. We had to state that we would tell the truth, so help me God. So this concept of separation of church and state, I, I don't think it exists, really. There are a million elements of it every single day and everything that we do not to get sidetracked again a much larger conversation i think we're coming to a point that you really like though where kate's and rachel have a pivotal moment something that was pivotal to you as well she's still really struggling at this point she still wants him to drop it and he says something that really still reverberates for me and made a big difference to me he says What goes on in this town is not necessarily the Christian religion everywhere else. And that's what I think back to the story that I told earlier about not realizing that there were even these questions. Mm -hmm. When I finally realized that, oh, there is more to this than I knew. That was a big deal for me as a young person. That's when everything started to sort of shift for me. And I think that that is a fascinating question to add to this film and the story because it is not black and white. It is not just simply evolution versus creationism. There are so many other questions involved. There are technicalities upon technicalities. Mm -hmm. And it's really not a fight against Christianity, even though Christianity sees it as such. At least that's how I see it. Court adjourns for that day, and we repair to the hotel where 
they're being served dinner. And again, it's an interesting portrait of contrasts. Brady is at dinner. Shoveling food into his face. Yes. And orating even while sitting down to eat. To journalists and other people around, he's still sort of speechifying and messageifying. And on the other hand, you've got Spencer Tracy and his austere little plate with the tiny sandwich. And his glass of milk for his ulcers. And he has an interesting conversation with Brady's wife, Sarah, at this point, where he talks about ideas separating us. Again, that idea that we started together at this point and how did we get so far apart and it's ideas that come between us and she insists it doesn't have to be that way and she thinks every man truly wants to be his brother's keeper and we get to see whether or not that's true immediately following when we cut to Claude Aikens delivering a fire and brimstone sermon to the assembled townspeople where he damns Bert and even goes further takes it too far as if that's not too far already. One human being saying that another one is going to face eternal damnation because of your opinion of what they're doing, essentially. But he even takes it further than that and damns his own daughter in public. And this is one of those instances that you see Frederick March's character demonstrate that he's more than just bombast, that he's more than just performance. He gets to show a little bit of the humanity that you were talking about. And for him, what his Christian faith really means, that it's not about that you as a human have the right to damn another person, only God does that, and God does not do that to innocence. That's what he's sort of saying. But there's that underlying, to me, sense of pacifism for him. Mm -hmm. He quells that fury with wisdom and compassion. He does cannily exploit that interaction, though. He does. There's a very real moment where he and Sarah are comforting Rachel. Mm -hmm. They want her to have an opportunity to just talk and express herself. But we learn that Brady uses that later on. In the courtroom. For his own purposes. We think that this is a truly human moment, and we want that to be the case. And I don't think he sees the moral repugnance of what he has done. Hmm. But in the wake of this very public castigating of his own daughter, things calm down. We're back at the hotel, and Brady encounters Drummond on the front porch, just sitting in the rocking chair. So they take this opportunity to have this really nice moment between the two of them, away from reporters, away from the radio, outside of the courtroom, and we get to find out a little bit more about their relationship and how they see each other, where they feel like they stand in relation to one another. And I think again about the opening song, The Old Time Religion, and It's Good Enough for Me. And he talks, or Brady specifically talks about the faith of our fathers. And I think again about these things that some people choose to inherit and that what was the case generations ago should still be preserved for all time without actually examining the merit or use of it or allowing it to change or adapt and he mentions again that he's really fighting for the young people Mm -hmm. for their minds that they are the golden chalice of hope well drummond counters that with his argument about golden dancer this hobby horse that he coveted as a very small child that his parents sacrificed and scraped and saved to get him and then immediately upon receiving it, it breaks. And it taught him the lesson 
to beware of these things that are all shine and no substance, which is how he views the opposition. That golden chalice of hope is all shine and no substance. What it actually contains, as far as he's concerned, at least has been demonstrated by the people of Hillsborough, is ignorance, bigotry, and hate. And he says to hell with it. So we return to the courtroom again, and from here on for me, it's just line of dialogue after line of dialogue that I am completely in love with. Definitely. All of my next notes have little uh, quotation marks around them. The absurd humor of Brian starting his oratory with, I have no intention of making a speech. (laughs) When clearly, that is never true for that character. Again, I'm struck by the absurdity of presenting the book of Genesis as evidence in a trial and then science not being allowed to present an opposing argument. Definitely. And the judge says, the right to think is not on trial. To which... Spencer Tracy and I object strongly. The right to think is very definitely on trial. That is what this whole thing is about. And I should mention at this point that I also noted, I never think about my hair. If you've seen our photo on the website, it's it's shaved pretty close. It's just nothing I care about, nothing I think about as a grooming issue, as a personal image issue. I can't wait to figure out where you're going to go with this because this is I love to me. Spencer Tracy's hair so much. <laughs> if I were to think about my hair or care about it, as an old man, I want nothing more than to have that thick, blinding white shock of completely unruly Spencer Tracy hair. If I had one wish about my personal appearance, that might be it. I don't blame you. But it is so it's great. It's pretty great. Anyway, sorry for that, because I just noticed That's that I okay. have that in my notes right there. So Brady continues to play to the crowd like he does. Drummond continues to do things in which he is trying to keep the clock stoppers from dumping a lot of medieval nonsense into the Constitution. Dang it. You stole my clock stoppers because that's my absolute favorite thing that he says. Love it. After he is cross-examining one of Kate's students and he says, has this whole thing, has it shattered your faith? Mm. And the boy says, well, I have to think about it. Good boy. Yeah. And nor should it ever be any more bombastic than that. Let's just think about these things as questions. Rachel is finally called to the stand. And this is what we were mentioning earlier, how Brady exploited her confidence in him. And he insists that she relate the story of the drowning of a young local boy that was the catalyst for Bert moving away from the church. Because that's the biggest crime, that he doesn't attend church anymore. The issue is that he left that church. I don't necessarily think There's he... There's only one, I'm guessing, really there. Mm-hmm. I don't think he left the church, and he certainly didn't abandon a larger universal idea of God. Definitely. That's why I'm saying it's not about one question, does God exist, or is the Bible right? It's these more interesting, layered questions. His position being that religion is supposed to comfort people, not frighten them to death. So he obviously still sees validity in it. He sees a good, positive, useful force that it can be, just not the way it's being applied in this church, in this town. Another of my favorite lines occurs here, one that resonates with me in particular. You cannot administer a wicked law impartially. Another big idea that 
I was thunderstruck by probably when I saw this the first time that I still love. Drummond has had it with his witnesses not being allowed, with the Bible being introduced as evidence, with what seems to be a clearly prejudiced case against his client. And he shoots off at the mouth like he's wont to do and ends up being in contempt of court. The father of the boy who drowned puts up his farm as collateral for his bail. This community is not uniformly against what he represents. There are what pockets. Kate's represents. Or Drummond, or either Drummond. one. There are pockets of citizens, the high school kids in his class, the Stebbins folks who put up their farm for collateral. There are a handful of them to counteract the people that we're about to see in the town square burning Kate's and Drummond in effigy throwing rocks through the jail windows and threatening him as they come in and out of the courtroom saying, we're going to get you, Cates. We're going to run you out of town or worse. Running him out of town is probably the nicest thing they have in mind for him. Well, I want to talk about two characters. So there's Mr. Stebbins, the father of the Stebbins boy who drowned. And I think that that's interesting that, again, it's not necessarily a person who is a strident objectionist, but it changes for people when something affects you personally. Mm-hmm. That he very well could have been on the side of the rock throwers and the pitchfork wielders, except for this thing. And then I think about the guy who works in the feed store, who is one of the potential jurors. Turns out to be the foreman. And he's talking about he doesn't go to church. His wife takes care of the religion for the both of them. That's what I was talking about as a young person when it was either you go to church or you don't go to church, but you're still kind of lumped into this large Mm -hmm. part of being a Christian. I'm more interested in the Stebbins character now that you mentioned that in the context of a larger conversation. Obviously, everyone that's listening to us has the internet, and so they know about the breakdown of civil communication between people, comment threads like you mentioned before, and how quickly especially in the current political climate, these conversations just break down and become completely ineffective to try to have with someone on the internet. Full disclosure, I have told people to go F themselves. (laughs) In person or online? Online. Okay. And in person. (laughs) You make a very valid point, though, about how when it is something that affects you personally, it alters the way... You deal with someone else. If you have suffered such a tragedy, for instance, as losing a child, somehow something that is that difficult to deal with and that drastic makes you better if you survive it, makes you more open to having these conversations, makes you... I'm sure that's not always the case in every case, but it seems like more often than not, when a person goes through something like that, It teaches them more about compassion and therefore makes them able to have more fruitful exchanges. It really struck me with those two characters how easy it is to live in a moral and intellectual gray area Mm -hmm. where you never have to think about anything and you can shoot your mouth off and say whatever the heck you want and stand on the side of bullies Until something happens and you see how entirely full of shit somebody can be. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very convenient for people. 
sometimes hatred and filth and especially behind the anonymity of a keyboard rather than and especially a because they feel that someone has spoken to them mm. and they are shooting this word out so i'll get off my soapbox until i get back on it again in a little okay. while well speaking of the notion of someone feeling like they are the mouthpiece of the divine henry drummond has this brilliant idea that he's going to put brady on the stand as a defense witness and he calls him as an expert on the Bible, since his scientific witnesses were completely disallowed. This allows him to exploit Brady's fundamentalist interpretation and expose him. And in the process, also initiate the larger conversation about how it is the individual human mind that is holy. Ideas, not cathedrals. And he goes after him with that Spencer Tracy bulldog tenacity that eventually completely breaks Brady down to the point that he is ranting about the books of the Old Testament. Brady realizes too late that he has lost control of himself and the case. Which, to me, is my only quibble with the film. Mm -hmm. Because everyone in the courtroom audience, as it were, looks shocked and dismayed. I do not get it. He's not doing anything more bombastic or wild than he has done throughout the entire film. I do not understand why they've chosen this moment to somehow be shocked by his behavior. I don't think it's necessarily what he's saying that they're shocked by. I think that they are seeing him for the first time where he is not in control. I think their shock is not at him espousing these ideas. I think the shock comes from their prophet from Nebraska, this person that they thought was infallible, is not. It will dash their faith, possibly. The opposition has gotten the better of God's emissary on earth, as far as they are concerned. And it's something they thought previous to that was impossible. I disagree. Okay. And let's take it on firing line when we're on <laughs> later on, and we'll examine that scene. To me, it plays more like what the film audience's reaction Okay. It's supposed to be, this is when we are supposed to see, finally, that he's been destroyed. I do not think that audience would actually behave that way. And they turn it around really quickly after this as well. They come right back on his side, and there's more God bless you, Matthew Brady's. So I have a problem with that. I think it reads not true to that specific crowd in that courtroom. Okay. Agree but to anyway, disagree. I will not agree to disagree because there's only one great truth in the world. <laughs> Well, you can find me $100, but I will not pay it. I will appeal to the highest court in this house. Well, however you want to read that scene, Brady has definitely had the wind knocked out of him, for sure. And when Rachel goes to his hotel room, Sarah tells him that he's lying down. He doesn't feel well, which I can certainly imagine that. And this is a great scene for me. This this is about that kind of moral gray middle ground that a lot of people can occupy. She goes to confront him about taking advantage of her. Yes. And Sarah essentially says, what do you believe in? I know this man. I know who he is. I know what he stands for. You're the one who has had all of these doubts. You haven't expressed your own opinion one way or the other. You just sim simply want Bert to either give up. 
you're not essentially willing to stand by this person or express your own view, what do you believe in? And to punctuate it, she strikes her, actually. Because Rachel has said something pretty offensive. And when that happens, Brady comes out of the room and he's, yeah, he doesn't look great. He's able to make it back into court the next day, though, for the reading of the verdict. We are now at the finale of the trial. And WGN Radio from Chicago is on the scene. First trial, actually, the Scopes trial, was the first trial to ever be broadcast over the radio. Yes. So that part is true to life. There are a handful of these instances throughout the film that actually did happen. Yeah, Darrow put Brian on trial. He did. He actually was held in contempt and then did the subsequent apology the next day and was reinstated in the case. And he had the same sort of lineup of scientific experts and those were all denied. I think a fun thing that you don't see in this from the actual trial, they took it outside because it was so hot. So they actually erected special risers Mm. for it. So it was even, again, it was a publicity stunt. It was even more wild and production. That was specifically for the exchange when he put him on the stand. That was when that part of that took place. They couldn't squeeze everyone into the courtroom for that. Yeah. And as it turns out, Kate's address to the bench, the verdict, and the fine were all exactly how it happened as well. Yes. Kate is found guilty. Shocking to none. And fined $100. A token fine. Because election season's coming. Yep, the mayor points it out to the judge. Hey, uh, this has gone a lot farther than we thought that it would have, so maybe let's try to rein it in a little bit. And Scopes, when asked if he had any statement to make, did say he would continue to fight and teach in violation of the law, if given the opportunity. All of those things did actually take place. And I love this moment, too. We haven't really talked about Dick York, and I think that he more than rises to the occasion in this film. I think he's great in this. And I also love the fact that during this very brief speech that he makes, there's no underscoring. Thank Mm -hmm. goodness. I loved his reactions to Gene Kelly. Something about their chemistry, the two of them, there was a realness to his response to him. I don't know if they necessarily got along, if they had some sort of adversarial thing, or if it was just a great job, but he really put across that this guy is a thorn in my side. He's being very antagonistic. It's making it hard for me to do the right thing and keep focused. He communicated all of those things to me in just a handful of small reactions. Nobody likes Hornbeck, and not a lot of people liked H.L. Mencken either. Except me. (laughs) And me too. I think we're the only house on our block that has six or seven (laughs) Macon biographies. I want to read them. I don't know that I necessarily would want to hang out with them. Who knows? I see that. He wrote a beautiful love letter, though. I have it in an entirely separate book. Anyway, I'll mention that on our Firing Line episode later on. Never one to pass up an opportunity to give a speech. Brady has prepared a few remarks, and he, at the conclusion of the trial, launches into this rambling, feverish address that is his last-ditch effort to promote his cause. Because as in the actual trial as well, Darrow decided not to do a closing summation, which meant that the prosecution could also not do a closing summation. So William Jennings Bryan handed out his speech to reporters afterwards so it could get printed. In the film, in a very dramatic turn of events, and paying off finally on that setup that I mentioned, that the stakes are life and death, Brady collapses and dies in the courtroom while delivering this speech. That part didn't happen that way. No, but 
He close. did die five days after the trial, but not nearly in such a dramatic fashion. No, but as the line comes up in the film, Darrow did say he died of a busted belly, and so that's what they use in the film, which is a great line. Before he dies, though, my favorite part is uh, Norman Fell saying to Spencer Tracy, you can't say damn on the radio, you can't say God on the radio. Not in 1925, anyway. No. And Spencer Tracy realizes, well, that's no fun. (laughs) So in the aftermath, trial is concluded. Brady's body has been taken away. It's now late in the evening, and Drummond is packing up his case with all of the papers and preparation that he made. And there's an exchange with Hornbeck. Now this, for me, falls into that category that I mentioned in a couple of podcasts ago about remembering things incorrectly. For many, many years, we're going on now several decades since I first saw this, I had always remembered the line from Hornbeck when he says to Drummond, because Drummond has really given him a rebuke, that he really doesn't stand for much and it's all about cynicism, and Hornbeck says, but you'll defend my right to be cynical, except he doesn't say cynical, I now realized. I was living this whole time thinking that. He actually says, you'll defend my right to be lonely. Mm-hmm. Lonely being... That's a huge difference. It is a huge difference. Lonely being... You are walking this path alone, that you are the person who believes differently than everybody else and is fighting for the right to think differently and be differently, and you are always going to be lonely because of it. So why did I remember the cynicism? Maybe back to this high school experience that was so ingrained in how I saw this. Well, that takes us to why I chose the film. That's the end, basically, right there. Drummond packs up the Bible and Darwin, puts them in his case side by side, and walks off into the sunset. But what you said specifically addresses why... I still love this movie so much and why it made such a difference for me. I discovered it at a similar time and the speeches that Spencer Tracy makes are still so exciting to me. They stir me the way they did when I was 20, when I was first trying to figure out how to be the agnostic in the room. And there weren't many of us, still aren't, it feels like sometimes, how to get these ideas across, how to fight for that right to be able to ask questions. I acknowledge that there are metaphysical issues to be dealt with, at least now, as we know them. But to me, this stuff feels a lot more like the answers are in the preternatural realm, not the supernatural realm. We just do not have the methods or the instruments to measure these things about ourselves yet. And one day we will. Much the same way magnetism and electricity was magic at one point. I think these metaphysical questions that we're asking now will someday, if we are given enough time, we'll be able to develop answers to them and understand a lot more about the unique way our brain and its chemicals and electricity generate these things within us. So this film was one of the very first things that gave me license, I felt like, to start to develop these ideas. Now, I know it's very broad, like we mentioned, and looking back at it now, as with a lot of Kramer, it's not super subtle. 
No one could confuse it with a really nuanced exploration of these ideas. It feels like a starting point still, like a freshman philosophy class, kind of, when I think about how it fits into who I am and where I've gone since then. But it's still absolutely crucial because it is A, that jumping off point, and B, I still find the reasoning in his speeches to be unassailable. Well, this leads me to kind of this, the last soapboxy type of discussion okay. I want to have. This has been bothering me for quite some time, and especially this week. So I'm going to go back to a, a question we batted around, and a question that comes up specifically in the film, which is finding that ideas have separated you from someone that you were close to. So when do you end discourse with someone? This is a little bit rhetorical. Now, I want to say first, I'm looking at this question pretty much through the lens of social media. Okay. Because that's how a lot of us interact these days. Sure. I'm not in a classroom anymore. I don't have a wide social circle that I'm interacting with consistently. So you do not, in social media, unfollow or hide people. I think that's cowardly. If you are going to accept a request, you deal with what comes with it. Okay. I am on the other side of that. And I find myself constantly hiding people, constantly unfollowing people. And what this film and this discussion has helped me crystallize, the reasoning behind that is that I do not want to hear again a made-up reason that has been floating around for a thousand years to justify behavior that I don't agree with. If you cannot come up with an argument that hasn't been said in a film that is 50 years old, based on a trial that is 80 years old, <laughs> or 90 years old actually, 91 years old, why should I have any discussion with you? I think social media is the problem. In this scenario, I would say you never give up on the discourse. I'm stubborn that way, maybe, but especially if you remove the social media thing as the conduit, if you were to sit down with another human being and just have a conversation, do you think you're going to run into so many people that you don't find any common ground with? When you think about, for instance, your family or your friends that we're at that far end of the fundamentalist spectrum. You still find things in them that you have in common, or at least a platform, a way to communicate with each other that you at least hear their idea and make sure they hear yours. And even if nothing comes of it right then, you each got to say what you wanted to say to someone who was truly listening and something might come of that down the road. I say never give up. Is I my... think that that is a beautiful sentiment. And unfortunately, I find myself so enraged so often that it has become so very personal to me and the stakes are so high that I just can't stand it anymore. But I think you're absolutely right that if you put this barrier, which is I'm not looking you in the eye and mm -hmm. we're not having a conversation that lasts longer than 140 characters or whatever, it's always going to limit that. Even in those realms, 
I don't censor conversation on my Facebook wall, for Absolutely, instance. yeah. People whom I completely disagree with are more than welcome to join in my conversations, say whatever it is that they believe in, as long as they are willing to stay and continue and take their lumps if they are way off on the offensive end of the spectrum, for instance. Yeah, I don't believe in limiting any of that. I really don't think there are that many people. I know there are some extreme cases that there is no getting through to. But I think the vast majority of people, if you each agree to sit down and take the time and pay attention and listen, there's something valuable that can come out of that unless the case is just absolutely extreme. I find a lot of those people in that same gray area as Rachel or Mr. Stebbins, presumably before the tragedy happened, that evidently they haven't recognized people in their own family or their own group as being what they consider to be wrong and it affecting them at a personal level that has opened up their mind and their heart to something other than what their fathers told them was the way to be. So you be that person. I guess so. So I should stop telling people to go F themselves and their <laughs> F and whatever F up their F. How many Fs do they have? <laughs> as many as I can get in there. Yeah, I just did one about three hours ago, too. I didn't say any F words. Hey, uh, why don't you uh, get, off get off your soapbox and okay. let's wrap this up. All right. And I think that that was a great response. And hopefully we can all learn to be more challenging and tolerant. I freely admit I'm not always going to do that perfectly, but I'm certainly going to try. Anyway. Anyway, back to the choice of this film. And you talked about the message and we talked about Kramer as a message director and producer. And I think the reason this film stands up beyond these difficult, weighty questions, though it may be a jumping off point, is that the message, at least for me, does not overwhelm the film. The performances are so great. The choices are so great. The scripting is so fantastic that... It is worth watching again and again and again, almost 60 years later. I do have one last note about Stanley Kramer that I was going to ask you about. As he fell out of favor in the 60s, as we started moving towards the counterculture era and the new Hollywood era, he said that no longer were writers or filmmakers interested in creating the great American novel or the great American film or indeed exploring what it meant to be American. How do you feel about that statement? Is he on to something with that? I think he is right in part, and at the same time, I think he would agree that that questioning is exactly what it means for many of us to be an American. I wholeheartedly disagree with him on this one. Okay. To me, it sounds like sour grapes. It sounds like the bitterness of someone who's being passed by in their own time, because I look at other examples of that. Altman, Peckinpah, Scorsese, Hal Ashby. I think all of those filmmakers, just that small sampling, were very much about examining what it means to be American. It's just that at this point, what it meant to be an American was different than what Kramer thought it was or was used to. I think about someone like Michael Cimino, for instance, right out of the gate was Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, 
The Deer Hunter, and Heaven's Gate. And I can't think of any more American exploration than that trio of films, maybe. We always have to progress beyond something to get to something new. We have to reflect what's going on in society, and then, of course, that's going to change. So one person has to spread open the barbed wire so we can go through, and then the next person is going to build upon that, and it's not always going to be the same thing. It's not always going to be your father's struggle. I think as liberal as he was, I think that sort of betrays kind of a middle-brow aesthetic, actually, when it comes to Kramer. I think he was not visionary enough to accept an even more liberal interpretation, in fact, of exploration of what it is to be an American. Is that, okay, I'm going to open up a whole other can of worms with this, but is that what happens to a lot of uh, older white men who see the world start to pass them by? I think it's a function of older anyone. Older anyone. Yeah. I see it a ton, actually, among my own friends. We're now in our 40s, and how many people do you know, for instance, that are keeping up with advances in culture, that are keeping up with any sort of cutting-edge film, music, culture, science, maybe a little more, because technology news is possibly easier to come by and you have to use it more often. But in terms of your own edification, how many people do you know that make a pointed effort to take time away from dealing with, for most of them, children and family and school and all of these things they have to contend with to specifically go in search of things that are still pushing their own artistic boundaries. Does that happen for most people? I don't feel like it does. I don't know. I don't know the answer. So I would say it's not an old white man problem in this case. It's just older people in general, regardless of gender or race. I think it's a thing. We'll say maybe it's possibly an easy trap to fall into. Certainly. It sure seems like If you're not constantly trying to challenge yourself. If you were to recommend something for them to challenge themselves... What's your recommendation this time? Well, okay. I'm not sure that it's necessarily going to do that, but I did choose my recommendation for a very specific purpose. Okay. Now, let's go back to McCarthyism, which we have not really touched on a lot, which was ostensibly the major theme that was being explored in the story. So stay with me on this. I have recommended Anatomy of a Murder, from 1959, directed by Otto Priminger and starring Jimmy Stewart, Lee Rimmick, and your favorite, Ben Gazzara. Oh, I love Ben Gazzara. Yes, you do. Now, ask me why I chose this one. Or do you know already? You might. No, tell me. Okay. I chose this because the part of the judge is played by Joseph N. Welch, who was the lawyer, a lawyer, during the real-life Army McCarthy hearings, and he was the person who said to Joseph McCarthy, at long last, have you left no sense of decency? I love that guy. Change the world. I love that guy. And so that's why I recommended this film. Besides the fact that it's a great movie and very interesting and a very challenging defense of the irresistible impulse. Mm -hmm. A very frank discussion of those themes for the time also. That's a great choice. I went with also a legal connection. I chose a film that depicts the story of someone else that Clarence Darrow defended. And I chose Swoon from 1992, which is based on the Leopold and Loeb case, directed by Tom Kalin. 
and I think this is a good example of something that's challenging. It may be a little dated at this point, but it was a really high profile example, at least to me, of what was called, still called, I guess, the new queer cinema of the early 90s. You had an interesting time in the early 90s in independent film where you had a lot of LGBT voices coming to prominence, it felt like. And this one in particular is one of my favorites from that time. Actually, I think I love all of the depictions of this case. Rope is my favorite, the Alfred Hitchcock movie. But this dealt more with the power that one person holds over another in the relationship. And that examination of that between these two guys in particular and the horrible crime that it led to was really fascinating, in addition to it being a real landmark of gay cinema. So I highly recommend it. If you've never seen it, it feels like a 90s movie. It is a little dated in terms of the style of it, but it's something that I think, at least if you're interested in the history of American crime, you should really see just for the treatment of their relationship, which you don't get to see in the other films that talk about this case. So, as always, two fantastic recommendations, Anatomy of a Murder and Swoon. And that brings us to the conclusion of episode 23. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Google Play for you Android users and iTunes and Stitcher Radio. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. I want to say thanks this time to people that have shared links to the show and or given us feedback over the last couple weeks. Tim Lego, Lars Nielsen, Grindhouse Dave, Drew Tavendale and the guys at FUDS on Film, Jeff Duncanson, and Jacob Mandel. All of those guys were very helpful in getting the word out about the show in the last couple weeks or giving us great feedback. We appreciate it any time you guys take the time to do that. If you are so inclined, we would certainly love to get more iTunes reviews or ratings. That helps get the show in front of more people. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our name in any of those venues. And finally, if you would like to see all of our episodes, including supplemental material, you can find that at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 